starting a new series this week um, that I'm really excited about, mostly because it's fun to play around with like really hot buzz topics, um, and there might not be anything like more culturally buzzworthy than the apocalypse right now, you know. Um, our culture is absolutely fixated on the collapse of society and whatever dystopian life might extend beyond that collapse. Uh, I'm sure you guys have noticed that um, the coronavirus hasn't alleviated this fascination one bit. Um, if anything, it's, it's ramped it up. I actually did a search on apocalyptic fiction. Um, and within that entry, there's a subsection for uh, pandemic apocalyptic film and television. Who knew it got so specific? But uh, there is uh, these specifically defined movies that attempt to depict what life might be like during and after a pandemic. So these aren't just like zombie movies with a jump scare. These are like movies that try to kind of capture what life might look like. There was 12 movies in this entry, and uh, 10 of them were made in the last 15 to 20 years. Like, we're growing more and more fascinated with this idea of the apocalypse. Um, and as you branch into kind of war-caused apocalypse, like Book of Eli, or fossil fuel shortage apocalypse, like Mad Max, or environmental apocalypse, like The Day After Tomorrow, there's literally hundreds hundreds of books, movies, TV shows, probably thousands, comic books, video games that encourage the imagination to consider what life would be like if everything fell apart. Uh, and most of them um, have been made fairly recently. This is a, this is a fascination that, that is growing. And of course, um, just because people make a lot of uh, art about a topic doesn't necessarily mean that the culture is in that same place. If you made 100 movies uh, and nobody came to see them, you wouldn't say that the culture is necessarily into those movies. But uh, in this case, that's not, uh, that's not it. Um, society seems just as fixated as filmmakers. Um, in its peak season, The Walking Dead um, the, was the number one viewed um, show on television and came the closest to any show in history to bumping football out as the most watched thing on, on television. It got within like a couple thousand views of bumping football for the first time ever. Um, it was that huge of a deal. And if you count all of its little Walking Dead spinoffs, it crushed the NFL, like in terms of total viewership. Um, America loves the apocalypse. Uh, any Walking Dead fans, by the way? A couple? Good. At least you owned it. Some of them are like, oh, I'm in church. Am I allowed to? No. It's, uh, to be honest, I've never seen a single episode because I love Jesus. And uh, no, <laughs> yeah, I'm kidding. No, 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 no. It, it has absolutely nothing to do with being too godly. I'm an abs- I'm too chicken. I'm a, I'm a scaredy cat. I, uh, I'm a complete baby when it comes to scary movies. Um, I, it's kind of funny. I can read scary books. Um, big confession. Stephen King's one of my favorite authors. I can read him, and it never affects me at all. I watch a commercial in October, and it's got, like, a scary thing in it, and I don't sleep for two days. Like, I can't watch scary things. I can read them and be fine. I can't, I can't watch them. So my kids, like, every once in a while, like, Dad, let's watch something a little scary. I'm like, are you crazy? I'll wet the bed. Yeah, so um, I, I can't do scary, but my eldest son got really into to The Walking Dead when it was in. He used to go over to Josh's, our children's pastor, so this is fun. Um, he'd just go over to their parents' house every week and watch the new episodes, you know, when it would come out. Um, 
And I learned that my oldest son actually has like this very apocalyptic mindset. Um, not long into the series, Josiah started his first go bag. Like, you know, that's the bag that all preppers have that's full of like, man, if it hits the fan and I got to just hit the woods right now, I've got my go bag and I know what's in it. And I know I can survive with this bag. I didn't even know it was called a go bag. And the fact that nobody like, like nodded when I said go bag means you didn't either. It's a thing. Like, yeah. <laughs> I love it. Uh, yeah, so we got people that are like, you know, yeah, I absolutely have my go bag. But, um, but Josiah started loading his go bag, like, ready for the zombies. Like, as soon as he got in this thing, like, this is going to happen, I've, and I'm ready. Um, he actually wound up putting quite a bit of research into it. Um, and, uh, and so if, he, if you ever have to hit the road in a moment's notice, Josiah is the guy um, you want to take uh, with you. Uh, in fact, funny side note, we, Josiah and I went to a men's group meeting years ago. Um, I think Josiah had almost just turned 18, maybe, and uh, right around there. He wasn't very old. Uh, uh, he was kind of new to the men's group thing, and we were, it, when The Walking Dead was huge, and, and we were sitting around talking, like, what if the zombie apocalypse happens? What's everybody bringing to the table, you know? And, and we're talking about what we can do and what we would be good at in, a, in an apocalypse, and and, a, and the, the, the senior pastor of the church we were, was there with us. And after we all kind of went around the circle, we were like, Tim, I'm sorry. We'd have to give you to the zombies, man. You know, if, if, the, if everything falls apart, we don't need sermons, brother. You're, you're toast. Like, you don't bring enough to the table. You need to up your skill set if you want us to keep you on the team. It was kind of funny. But since that day, since uh, that started, my son Josiah definitely kind of upped his game and, and – uh, if I'm honest, if the 2020 lottery of disaster turns up zombies, um, Josiah is the one you want on your team. Um, in fact, if I'm honest, uh, now this is just my opinion, but if I'm 100% honest, I think Josiah has been a little bit disappointed 2020 hasn't turned up zombies yet. Um, I snapped a couple pictures of Josiah back when we were in the full lockdown. This one. China can't even make zombies right. <laughs> Hashtag not my apocalypse. <laughs> That's not actually Josiah. But, and I probably shouldn't say that in church anyway. Maybe too far. How about, how about this one? <sighs> Hashtag worst apocalypse ever. Anyway, Josiah is definitely your man in the apocalypse. I've got some skills, but Josiah's got me beat. I, I like to pretend to be tough and pretend to be ready. I kill my own food when I can, except I usually cry when I do it, so that kind of offsets it, like totally spoils the rough image. Um, But Josiah is your best chance at survival. And this is why I bring up Josiah's go bag and his arsenal and his fancy straw that allows you to drink swamp water if you need to. Um, This series is called Surviving the Apocalypse, right? It's about survival, which brings up an interesting tension. Because all this fascination with the apocalypse that I've mentioned is really only half of the apocalyptic narrative, right? Because in church, we have a much different relationship to the apocalypse, don't we? Or do we? See, the part of uh, the Bible narrative um, is the eschatos, what we call the eschatos, which is the, the, the word that means the end times, the end things, the end. The eschatos is the end. 
And that's part of our narrative is, is the eschatos, the end. The story that we find ourselves in has a chapter where Jesus returns in both judgment and redemption. And the endless stream of pain and injustice and death and struggle comes to an end. And this is, uh, this is eschatology, the study of last things, of the, the study of the end. And it's been a fascination in the church for 2,000 years. This is not a new fixation for Christians. In fact, there has never lived a generation of Christians who were not almost entirely convinced that they were in the end times. That they were the one, including the Apostle Paul. He was utterly convinced the Lord was going to return in his lifetime. And then later in his life, we see in his final things, he starts to realize, oh, my time has come to an end. I've run my race. And he starts to realize that it may not happen. But through most of his life, he has assumed he was in the end times. He, he was in the eschatos. And every Christian generation since has. But what has changed over time is our relationship to that apocalypse, our relationship to the eschatos. Have you noticed that people today, especially Christian people, are people who talk about end times, talk about it like it's ominous, like, like there's, a, there's a fear they're, they're hanging on and looking for every sign. Oh man, maybe that's a sign of the end or, uh, uh, or, or oh boy, did you notice this thing that happened in Israel and, and it has this ominous feel. And, or if not ominous, aggressively triumphant, as, as, as if they cannot wait for all these sinners to get theirs. Have you noticed that? Like, has anyone else picked up on the fact that there's, a, there's like a vindictive love for the second coming? But when the New Testament writers write about the eschatos, they spoke about Jesus' return as this amazing hope that was soaked in the redemptive love of Jesus. So instead of like, oh no, dad is coming, you are in trouble, it was just hold on. Dad's coming and he'll fix it. That was the way they talked about the apocalypse. So here we are, we have a society now today who cannot wait for the apocalypse and a church that seems afraid of it. Things have flipped. Could not be more backwards. So of course... This is a topic I couldn't wait to talk about. How fun is this? So let me start off by saying um, we're not ultimately talking about the second coming when we talk about the apocalypse. This is a study about surviving the apocalypse. And frankly, if we're talking about the eschatos, uh, there is no go back. No weapon, no first aid kit, no tricky little fire starter you can buy from Amazon that will get you through that Apocalypse. That apocalypse is not about survival. It's about welcoming our Savior to fix what is broken. That doesn't mean that things don't completely fall apart. When you look up the word apocalypse, the Oxford Dictionary has two definitions. The first one is the complete and final destruction of the world as described in the biblical book of Revelation. And the second definition is an event involving destruction or damage on an awesome or catastrophic scale. See, the first definition will only happen once, but definition number two is something that I think most of us will face at one time or another, to one degree or another in our lives. And I believe the Bible has a lot to say about how we can survive that kind of collapse. 
So this week we're going to talk about surviving a personal apocalypse. Next week we're going to talk about national apocalypse. Week three, Esther is actually going to teach us about global apocalypse. And then week four, we're going to look at the ultimate apocalypse. So it's going to be a fun series. So that long intro uh, brings us to today's um, uh, today's passage. I always have the hardest time starting a new series because I never know where to just jump in. But um, so that's a little bit of a long intro, but let's dive into today's text. We're reading in Psalms 59, if you like to follow along in your Bible. If not, the words will be on the screen. Rescue me from my enemies, O God. Protect me from those who have come to destroy me. Rescue me from these criminals. Save me from these murderers. You have set an ambush for me. Fierce enemies are out there waiting, Lord. Though I have not sinned or offended them, I have done nothing wrong, yet they prepare to attack me. Wake up. See what's happening and help me. O Lord God of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, wake up and punish these hostile nations. Show no mercy to wicked traitors. Interlude. They come out at night, snarling like vicious dogs as they prowl the streets. Listen to the filth that comes out of their mouths. Their words cut like swords. After all, who can hear us, they sneer. But Lord, you laugh at them. You scoff at the hostile nations. You are my strength. I wait for you to rescue me. For you, O God, are my fortress. In his unfailing love, my God will stand with me. He will let me look down in triumph on all my enemies. Don't kill them, for my people soon forget such lessons. Stagger them with your power and bring them to their knees, O Lord. O Lord, our shield. Because of the sinful things they say, because of the evil that is on their lips, let them be captured in their pride, their curses and their lies. Destroy them in your anger. Wipe them out completely. Then the whole world will know that God reigns in Israel. Interlude. My enemies come out at night snarling like vicious dogs as though they, as they prowl the streets. They scavenge for food, but they go to sleep unsatisfied. But as for me, I will sing about your power. Each morning I will sing with joy about your unfailing love. For you have been my refuge, a place of safety when I'm distressed. O oh, my strength, to you I will sing praise. For you, O oh God, are my refuge, the God who shows me unfailing love. This is the word of the Lord. So this is not the type of psalm that we um, turn into like a Sunday morning worship song. It's pretty hard to set this to music and, and, uh, and kind of get lost in worship. Um, as the band sings this one. Um, Oh Lord, wake up and punish those hostile nations. Show no mercy to the wicked traitors. Pause for dramatic effect. They come out at night snarling like vicious dogs. They prowl the streets. Listen to the filth that comes out of their mouth. Anyone want to set that to music and hum a few bars of that? So that it really stirs the heart to worship? This is a psalm of lament. It's, uh, um, it, it joins about one-third of the psalms uh, as being psalms of lament. We've done a, quite a bit of work on this, uh, the concept of biblical lament, so I won't spend much time on the fundamentals. Um, if you're interested, I can certainly send you links to some past sermons where we've talked about what biblical lament is um, and why it's important. Um, but I will say that being a psalm of lament means that this psalm is raw, it's painful, it's full of venom and hurt, um, and it's among the most human and honest um, psalms in the scripture. 
This psalm reflects David at a moment of extreme negative emotion, um, which begs the question, what kind of experience pushes someone um, to the point where they sit down and write a song asking God to stop being so darn merciful and just punish some wicked people? And luckily, this psalm is one of the one of the ones that actually gives us that info. In the original text, um, uh, it gives this little introductory statement. It says, "For the choir director, a psalm of David regarding the time Saul sent soldiers to watch David's house in order to kill him, to be sung to the tune Do Not Destroy.'" He gives like a little musical note, you know, which also means you know David was one of those back in the nineties. Uh, I led worship for a youth band, and we used to take secular songs and, and turn them to, to, you know, write Christian lyrics over the top of them. It was super cheesy, except for the fact that David did it too, which I absolutely love. <coughs> okay, so we know that, uh, that this is the time Saul sent men to David's house to kill him. Uh, and just in case you don't keep that info, you know, right at the top of your head all the time, I looked it up for us. And uh, it comes from 1 Samuel chapter 19, verse 11, where it says this. Then Saul sent troops to watch David's house. They were told to kill David when he comes out the next morning. But Michal, David's wife, warned, it, warned him, if you don't escape tonight, you will be dead by morning. So let's double check. For the choir director, some of David, regarding the time Saul sent soldiers to watch David's house in order to kill him. And in 1 Samuel, then Saul sent troops to watch David's house, they were told to kill David when he came out the next morning. So it feels like the right story. We've got the story that goes with the psalm. And in uh, 1 Samuel 19, it goes on to escape to explain David's really narrow escape, um, this uber-stressful um, escape. Michal uh, created this elaborate deception um, for David. Uh, um, but the verse before um, verse 10 really marks the key moment in David's life. Like one of those hinge point moments, one of those real turning points in the life of David. And I need to set this up a little bit. Most of us know David's kind of charmed story, right? As a boy, the prophet shows up at David's house to anoint a king. Of course, David's dad overlooks David because David's too young. Um, but in kind of a shocking move, the, the prophet anoints David, chooses this young man. Nobody saw it coming. I mean, God saw it coming, but nobody, including the prophet, uh, saw it coming. Certainly not David himself. There's no precedent for this. There is no clear path forward with what to do with, with a randomly chosen child um, who's just been anointed king. So David just went about his normal business. And then one day he's delivering grilled cheese sandwiches to his brothers on the battlefield, and he finds them hiding um, from a defensive lineman named Goliath, this beast of a man. Um, David refuses to be bullied and steps up and, and actually does what the army feared to do, which was destroy this giant in the name of God. Shortly thereafter, Saul, the king, uh, is struggling with panic attacks and anxiety, and, and guitar music helps. And so he, uh, get, guess who? sits around watching sheep, um, playing guitar like James Taylor, our boy David. And so David <coughs> gets called in to come and play guitar for Saul, and it mellows him right out. And so David gets hired. He gets a new job. He is now the lead guitarist for 
kingdom of Israel and play his guitar for the king. Saul decides to keep him. Actually, he just sends a letter to David's dad with some gifts and says, hey, I'm keeping him, you know, which is, uh, I guess, what kings get to do. But David goes from shepherd to playing lead guitar in the nicest venue in the kingdom. Then he goes to war. It's time to go to war, and, and David's with Saul anyway playing guitar, and so Saul needs an armor bearer, and so he has David become his armor bearer, and, and David helps him get dressed and carries his, his weapon, and, and when they start fighting, David starts fighting and finds he's good at it. And, he, and, he, and everybody else notices he's good at it, and when they're coming back into town after a battle, the, the women kind of line the streets and they're singing as the men go home. And this is a, <laughs> this is a, a piece of history that, like, this happened a lot, where they would go to battle and they'd come back to these singing women. And, it, and, it, and you don't realize just, like, how invested these women were in that until you realize this was a rape and pillage culture. And so every time your men left to fight a battle, you had no idea how your day was going to end. And so when they were the ones marching back into the town, of course you lined the streets and sung because the alternative was horrid, horrific. And so they lined the streets, thrilled to see their men being the one coming into the town rather than the enemy. And they're singing this amazing song. They're so thrilled. They're like, Saul has killed thousands. And Saul's feeling good. And they follow up with, and David has killed ten thousands. David's feeling good. David is anointed by a prophet. He's a giant slaver. He's a rock star guitarist. And now he's a famous war hero. He's got this amazing blessed life. But David is not the only one who hears these words. Saul hears the new lyrics. And immediately there's this tectonic shift that begins to create David's apocalypse. One of the ways we can know that David is still really young when this happens is the fact that David heard the words of those songs and didn't panic. When he did start to pick up some intrigue, David goes to his best friend Jonathan, who happens to be Saul's son. And after Jonathan convinces his dad how faithful and helpful David is, David relaxes. And this brings us up to Verse 9 of 1 Samuel 19. Remember, verse 11 is the verse where Saul sends men to kill uh, David. In verse 9, just two verses earlier, it goes like this. But one day when Saul was sitting at home with a spear in his hand, and the tormenting spirit from the Lord suddenly came upon him, as David played his harp, comma, first, whoever put the verse breaks in the Bible, terrible place for a verse break. As David played his harp, <clears throat> just leaves you hanging. But it seems like life's back to normal, right? Saul's feeling anxious. David's playing guitar. This is what they've been doing. This is Everything's back where it should be. Saul's struggling with his anxiety, his spiritual oppression, whatever it is. David's calming him down with some guitar riffs. Everything's back in place until you see what's on the other side of that comma. Saul hurled his spear at David. But David dodged out of the way, and leaving the spear stuck in the wall, he fled and escaped in the night. Now that's verse 10. And remember, verse 11 is the verse about sending men to kill David that inspired the psalm of lament that we read. 
And just like that, with one spear's throw, David's life falls apart. This is the happy kid who sat in the pasture with his sheep and wrote Psalms 11. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic your name fills the earth. Your glory is higher than the heavens. David goes on for the rest of that psalm in this kind of innocent bliss about how amazing God is. And with a single thrown spear, everything changes. Now David's singing, because of the sinful things they say, because of the evil that's in their lips, let them be captured by their pride. Your curses, your lies, destroy them in your anger. Wipe them out completely. Is this even the same kid? And actually it is, and it's a really common story. For, for David, it meant the anointed child, the giant slaying rock star, the famous war hero who is loved by everybody is now a homeless refugee. See, I think that's why David wrote Psalm 59 about the night that, that Saul sent his troops rather than the day that Saul threw the spear. When Saul threw the spear... All that meant to David was he lost his job. He was no longer the lead guitar playist and player and uh, guitarist in the palace. Not great, but he kind of missed his life anyway, and it's good to be home. But David didn't realize that the apocalypse had just begun. The spear wasn't the apocalypse. The spear was just that first little stone to fall. The spear is just the the beginning. It wasn't until David was fleeing his own home, leaving his new young bride behind, that David realized how fundamentally everything in his life had just fallen apart. It started with a throne spear. It would be years before he'd get to go home again. Years and years. I think 14 years. It started with a throne spear. For some, it starts with a diagnosis. For some, it starts with a termination notice. For some, it's divorce papers. For some, it starts with a police officer knocking on your door. Shh. You don't have to bear with me. For me, it started with a phone call. Esther was on the other end of the phone saying some of the most absurd things. Stuff that didn't even make sense. Stuff that was just absolutely couldn't be true. She had received a hysterical call that was equally ridiculous. And as stupid as it all was, it turned out to be true. My spiritual dad and my two best friends were all three killed in a car wreck at the same time. Just like David, uh, my apocalypse had actually started a while before. I was too dumb to see it. But as I sat on, on this end of this ridiculously ludicrous phone call, it was like I could hear the spear vibrating in the wall. Nothing would, would ever be the same. And, and I physically lost my mentor, but... For Esther, it was probably worse. She watched her relationship with her mentor, who was my mentor's widow, 
kind of crumble under the weight of grief and pain and need. And without getting buried in a long, intricate story, this was the first spear um, that eventually led to her and I leaving a meeting with the church's leadership that ended in my lifelong, deeply devoted, church-going, faithful wife saying that she would never step foot in the church again. first thing we need to learn about apocalypses from David is that they happen. Things do fall apart. Not every day. Don't walk around looking over your shoulder for the spear. When life is good, praise God and rejoice. Wallow in all that goodness. But when the spear does hit the fan, am I mixing cliches there? doesn't mean you've messed up. It doesn't mean you're being punished. It doesn't mean anything like that. David was faithful. David hadn't done anything wrong that, that brought on this reaction from Saul. In fact, many of the Psalms that David writes in this season of his life are filled with the confusion born of the injustice of this moment. David knew he didn't deserve what was happening. All he had ever done is exactly what Saul wanted him to do. David had no trouble bringing that frustration to God. But apocalypses happen. Obviously, we're living through a pandemic right now that everybody wants to turn into an apocalypse. But more importantly, for some folks, this season has been just that. Jobs have been lost. Money has been lost. Health has been lost. Lives have been lost. People have been hurt by a virus, and others have been hurt by our response to the virus. And no one could have known that that was a spear hitting a wall back in January when we started, when we first started hearing about this bat thing. And we have people in our church who are living on the other side of the spear and has nothing to do with coronavirus, cancer, broken marriages, major struggles with children. Zombies don't have to overwhelm the planet for there to be an apocalypse. Job, Jonah, Elijah, King David, Moses, so many others right in our Bibles experienced it too. And so do we. But this series isn't about the fact that apocalypses happen. It's about how to survive them. So let's look back at David's art that he made in the midst of this apocalypse and and see if we can find some insight. So though I can't really do it justice in the time I have, I do need to explain a little bit about how Jewish poetry works. Um, I have some, some, some sermons from summer of 2019 if you want to go into more detail where I spend more time on this. But Jewish poetry is structural, not grammatical. What that basically means is, is you build a, a, almost a physical structure with your words instead of rhyming them and, and tying together. And what's cool about it, it's the only style of poetry that works no matter what language you translate it into. So it's very interesting that the, the main form of biblical poetry is the kind that can be translated and still have an effect. Um, uh, so, <coughs> Psalms uh, 59 is a structural um, Jewish poem called a chiasm, um, which means that there's these series of statements 
on one side of a main thesis that match a series of statements on the other side. It kind of forms this, this visible uh, pyramid. Um, and it's designed to highlight that central point. It's designed to, uh, kind of like if we did roses are red, violets are blue, like nobody hears a roses are red, violets are blue poem and goes, what is he trying to say about the rose? You know what I mean? Like the rose is a setup. <laughs> you know, roses are red. That's a setup. No, you're not trying to, the, the punch is the second half of the thing, you know. And that's kind of the way a chiasm works. It's not that the, the, the other verses don't mean anything. It's just that they're mainly designed to point at the main thesis. That's what they're set up to do. Um, <coughs> this can tend to get lost on us because, you know, we read one verse at a time and we want to kind of pull every verse out and give it equal meaning, you know, outside of its context. Uh, and that's not really how Jewish poetry works, or at least rarely. So I'm going to, let's look at what a Jewish reader who is, uh, who understands chiastic structure would see in David's lament about um, this day his apocalypse started. It would go like this. So verses 1 and 2 are about God protecting and being his refuge. So are verses 16 and 17. Three and four, the ambush, same with 14 and 15. Five, have no mercy on them, destroy them, says the exact same thing in verse 13. Six and seven, the things they say about me, they, you know, uh, and then verses 12 and 13, says it again, exact same statement. Verses eight is how big God is, how everybody else is so small. Verse 11, same statement, which means the central thesis of this chiastic poem is this central verses nine and ten. That's what David is trying to draw out of this structural poetry. I really wish I had time to actually go through the psalms so you can see how each line um, lines up. Uh, if you're a nerd like me, it's really, really fun to watch these chiasms um, fall together once you kind of find the pattern. But please, if you want to do that, if you're like dying to see how that works, um, reach out to me. I'll send you this image and you can go through the psalm by yourself. It's really fun to watch how David uh, built this psalm. Uh, and it helps because sometimes you ever read the Psalms and it just feels like a random list of words, like statements that just don't really flow together in any kind of narrative form. Um, usually once you find the chiasm, you're like, oh my gosh, he put so much into that. That was super cool. Um, but the central thesis is verses 9 and 10. You are my strength. I wait for you to rescue me. For you, O oh God, are my fortress. In his unfailing love, my God will stand with me. He will let me look down and triumph on my enemies. David, in the midst of his disillusionment and frustration and loneliness and fear, clung to God. And, and you want to talk about a go-bag. Look at this list. Are you feeling weak? You're my strength. Feeling lost and stranded? I wait for you to rescue me. Feeling vulnerable and exposed? You are my fortress Feeling lonely and abandoned in his unfailing love, my God will stand with me. Feeling humiliated and full of shame, he will let me look down in triumph on all of my enemies. Look at this verse and imagine David, a, a newly homeless refugee, taking inventory on his condition. Looking at his life like what? What does my life mean now? Everything I thought my life was going to be about just fell apart. And he takes inventory. 
and he finds he has everything he needs. So how do we respond to this? There are two ways to look at a personal apocalypse. Number one, everything has changed. And number two, nothing has really changed. And both are are true, of course. The second, the spear left Saul's hand, David's life was changed forever. That's undeniable. When you get that call that a loved one is gone, your life will never be the same. That doesn't mean you won't have a great life. It doesn't mean you, you don't heal. But it will be different from then on. It does change. Once your life falls apart, everything is different. But I think the second statement is a little more true. I remember listening to a sermon preached by a man who only had a couple more months to live. He was dying, and he knew it. He came on stage, and he opened with an explanation of his condition. And when he finished, and the whole room was kind of sitting in stunned silence, he said something that stuck with me to this day. He said, uh, after telling us he was dying, he said, which means the only difference between me and you is that I live in acute awareness of the reality we all share. See, when the apocalypse hits your life, all that really changes is your vision of what the rest of your life was going to look like. We serve a God with a plan. God had a plan for David's life. God actually had a huge plan for David's life. God's plan was to bring his own son, Jesus, through the lineage of this man. You really think a crazy man with a sharp stick could change that? And I think David was like a true artist. I think David used his art to process his emotions and make sense out of the world. I think when David saw that spear coming at him, he realized how fragile it all is. I think he saw for the first time how fast it can all change. My world changed in a way that I literally could have never dreamed or imagined with a single phone call. That, that, the potential for that moment had honestly never crossed my mind. In the tip of David's spear, he saw how thin it all was. And I think as he sat down to process that through his art, as he sat down to write music from that moment, he made a decision. He said, I can't live in a world like that. I can't, I can't live in a world that can turn turtle in a second. I need something more solid. And he wrote verses 9 and 10. You are my strength. I wait for you to rescue me. For you, O oh God, are my fortress. In his unfailing love, my God will stand with me. He will let me look in triumph on all my enemies. With the help of his art, David found something solid. See, if your goal, if, if what you live for is the future in your imagination, that's a really slippery thing to hold on to. And it will get really hard to ever find stability. 
That booger can get away really quick. But if your goal, if your reason for being is to find yourself in the story of God, devotedly playing whatever role He has for you to dance, then what could ever shake you? I know I make that sound trite, like, like it's easy, but here's the deal. This isn't a spiritual discipline that you can choose or not choose. This isn't like meditation, like I'm up here going, this would be really good for you, try it. This isn't like that. You can completely ignore this message, and it will not affect your life at all until the spear comes your way. This isn't about how to be like an amazing disciple for Jesus. This is survival 101. You need to put your faith in something immovable because the future is really, really flimsy. I give my son a bunch of crap for his go bag and his survival videos and his ridiculous cache of ammo, but in all honesty, I completely appreciate preparedness. If, if the zombies do show up, I totally expect my son to keep me alive. And ultimately, that's what I'm suggesting for this morning. Be- become a doomsday prepper. Only instead of filling your basement with water that's going to go bad and enough canned goods to feed a dystopian village, fix your hope on the one who's been through this before. Look into the future. Fix your eyes on the dark, the unknown. And when that insecurity starts to tickle at the back of your mind, reach up and grab the hand of the one who can see in the dark. I promise you, as scary as that might be, it's way safer than charging ahead on your own. Let's go to the table.